Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. This week we present Caroline Fredrickson, a senior fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice, who explains why she believes that after Trump leaves office, reforms must be undertaken to protect democracy from future autocratic presidents. Christopher Viles, Director of American Studies at the University of Connecticut, who discusses what we've learned about the appeal of Donald Trump's unique brand of authoritarianism among American voters. And Winona LaDuke, founding director of Honor the Earth, who talks about how opponents are organizing to resist the state of Minnesota's recent approval of the Line 3 fossil fuel pipeline project. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Russia plans to build its first military base in Africa since the end of the Cold War. The base will be built in the port of Sudan with strategic access to the Red Sea and the Indian Ocean. The new base is similar in its capabilities to Russia's TARDIS naval base in Syria. Over the last few years, Russian President Vladimir Putin has sought to increase Russia's influence across sub-Saharan Africa. The announcement comes just one year after Russia hosted its first geopolitical summit focused on relations with African states with the goal of increasing arms sales and investments in natural resource projects. The Russian base at the port of Sudan will house 300 civilian and military personnel and has facilities to dock four nuclear-powered ships. It will be close to other naval bases in nearby Djibouti, which hosts U.S., Chinese, and French bases. The Russian base is expected to be a hub for Russian military operations in the Horn of Africa and the nearby Middle East, including Saudi Arabia and Yemen. According to a Russian government document, Russia will supply Sudan with weapons to defend the site and will be permitted to station troops outside the facility on Sudanese territory. India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi was one of the first world leaders to congratulate former Vice President Joe Biden on winning the U.S. presidential election. Modi, a close ally of Donald Trump and Hindu nationalists, also celebrated the election of Vice President-elect Kamala Harris, the first black American and the first South Asian American woman elected vice president in U.S. history. Harris's victory was also cheered by residents in the village of her maternal grandparents in the state of Tamil Nadu. The U.S. and India have developed a strong economic and military alliance dating back to the days of Bill Clinton. Many observers are asking if Biden, once in office, will press Modi over human rights violations in the disputed state of Kashmir and take a stand to uphold the rights of India's 200 million Muslims. Concerns were raised after anti-Muslim riots broke out during Trump's visit to India in February. Both Biden and Harris issued statements critical of Modi and his Hindu nationalist Bhartiya Janata Party during the campaign. Since Modi was re-elected to a second term in May 2019, his government has imposed direct rule in Kashmir, placed local officials under house arrest, and later passed a controversial citizenship law that critics say discriminates against Muslims. 
Under Modi's watch, hate crimes against minorities have increased, opponents of his government's policies have been imprisoned, and Amnesty International was forced to shut down its India operations. Tyson Foods has suspended managers at its Waterloo, Iowa pork processing plant after a wrongful death lawsuit claimed managers ordered sick employees to report for work while supervisors privately wagered money on the number of workers who would be sickened by the deadly virus. The case deals with the April 26 death of Tyson worker Isidro Fernandez, who contracted the coronavirus. The suit alleges Tyson engaged in willful and wanton disregard for workplace safety. At least five workers at the Waterloo plant have died from COVID-19 since the beginning of the pandemic. According to court papers, plant manager John Casey told workers to show up even if they had coronavirus symptoms, allegedly maintaining that the virus was a glorified flu. Meanwhile, Tyson supervisors avoided going to the factory floor out of fear of getting sick with the virus. Worker advocates claim the company's punitive attendance policies led to the spike of COVID-19 cases and deaths among meatpacking employees. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. Since the November 3rd election victory of former Vice President Joe Biden and Senator Kamala Harris, President Trump has refused to concede his loss and instead embarked on a dishonest effort to overturn the election results. Mr. Trump and his lawyers launched dozens of frivolous and failed lawsuits with the goal of invalidating millions of ballots cast mostly by black residents in cities including Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Detroit, Milwaukee, and Atlanta. In response to Trump's racially targeted voter suppression effort, a group of Michigan voters filed a lawsuit against Trump and his campaign, arguing that the defendants are openly seeking to disenfranchise black voters in violation of the 1965 Voting Rights Act, partially dismantled by the Supreme Court in 2013. After 16 days of blocking President-elect Biden and his team, from gaining access to mandated funding and office space for the presidential transition. Trump appointed General Services Administration Chief Emily Murphy, finally announced on November 23rd, that the transition can move forward. Your reporter spoke with Caroline Fredrickson, former president of the American Constitution Society and now a senior fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. Here she examines the damage the Trump regime has done to our nation's democratic institutions, the need for reforms to prevent future presidential abuse of power, and the debate on whether or not President Trump should be prosecuted for his law-breaking during his four years in office. There's been a whole coalition of organizations that have been devoted towards uh, to thinking about how we defend our democracy. Um, and what are the key pieces that need to be reestablished um, after um We've all weathered the storm of the Trump administration and the vast destructive power that that it has waged on our government. It's like Hurricane Donald um, against ethics and morality. Um, How do we clean up after that? What's our FEMA? 
for Hurricane Donald. Mm-hmm. And um, and there's been a lot of thinking um, in a whole variety of different areas from how do we protect the right to vote against these terrible assaults, trying to disenfranchise particularly black voters, but also other minorities um, and urban voters. How do we ensure that ethics rules such as the Hatch Act are respected? How do we make that enforceable? You have to start applying it to the president. The president's been exempted from a lot of these laws, again, because the assumption was that the president would abide by them without needing that kind of enforcement. And there's also been you know, some legal issues around separation of powers, and can Congress really enforce that kind of law against the president? But we need to really grapple with that. Can the president be prosecuted? That's an opinion of the Justice Department. It doesn't have the force of statute behind it. We need to reexamine that. And I hope Biden's Justice Department will revoke that uh, opinion that was issued 30 years ago. Um, And we need to update that and recognize that the president cannot, should not be above the law. Um, So there are a whole variety of areas. But as I said, the good thing is that ever since Trump has been elected, there's been a lot of thinking about what needs to be done to basically hardwire some of these norms into a legal framework, or at least a, a, a framework that's more enforceable than the one that preexisted Trump. And so hopefully we can come out of this with the kind of strengthened situation that will not allow, you know, the, a Trump, a smart Trump, a competent Trump to come in and blow our system to pieces. Well, when we only have a couple of minutes left, Caroline. I did want to ask you uh, this final question. The question revolves around should Donald Trump be held accountable for his violation of ethics, the Constitution, tax law, basic morality, a whole list of things. President-elect Biden, like his uh, partner Barack Obama, is signaling that he doesn't believe the prosecution of Donald Trump would be good for the nation, healing, or unity. When we talk about President Obama, when he came in office, he said he wanted to look forward and not back, meaning that uh, there wasn't going to be any federal prosecution of George W. Bush and his administration for torture and other violations of the law that he uh, undertook in prosecuting a war of aggression against Iraq. In this case, where do you think we should go as a nation? There are federal courts, there are state courts. Uh, Donald Trump is open to prosecution in both, I would say. I, you know, thought a lot about this. I do happen to think that Donald Trump is really very different. I mean, I, I was not a supporter of George Bush. I was very troubled by, more than troubled, completely disturbed by the things that happened in his administration. It wasn't just the torture. It wasn't just the surveillance, illegal, warrantless wiretapping. Um, it was also the abuse of the Justice Department to use the voting rights section to investigate elections where Democrats won and not Republicans. It was the politicization of that whole process. But yet, this is we're really in a unique situation. Um, I don't think Biden is going to do this. Personally, though, I think I I really worry that without some level of accountability, um, we've opened the door to uh, criminals in the future uh, using the presidency for their own benefits. And so I hope that Cy Vance and the attorney general of New York and the others who are moving forward keep their cases going, even if they don't end up prosecuting them to the extent of putting Donald Trump in jail. I think he needs to and others need to feel like there's a penalty to be paid. Uh, and, and, you know, Trump may try and pardon himself, which is not at all uh, something that uh, most constitutional scholars think he has the ability to do, but he'll try and do it anyway, and it'll be uh, contested. He may, you know, do the more prudent thing and resign, have Pence then become president and then pardon him, just like Nixon did with Gerald Ford. Um, but that doesn't get him off the hook for state and local crimes. And so 
Um, I think there needs to be a continued prosecution. Maybe there'll be a deal and he won't end up having to do time. But I think the prospect of actually facing legal liability is pretty important for the next person who attempts to be a dictator in our country. That was Caroline Fredrickson, distinguished visitor from practice at Georgetown Law School and a senior fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. Find more analysis and commentary on strengthening checks and balances on the presidency to prevent future abuse of power by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. When Donald Trump delivered his inaugural address on January 20, 2017, the touchstone for his speech was American carnage. Now that four years have passed and Trump has suffered defeat in his re-election bid, we can assess the carnage that this failed real estate billionaire and one-time reality TV star has inflicted on our nation. From the very beginning when Trump launched his presidential campaign in 2015, he railed against Mexican rapists and murderers, signaling his election strategy to identify scapegoats that would be blamed for the failings of America's economic system that has witnessed record levels of inequality on affordable health care and higher education. Upon taking office, Trump's list of designated scapegoats grew to include Muslims, the media, African Americans, women, intellectuals, and the liberal elite. In Trump's words and actions, we can clearly hear and see echoes of authoritarian and fascist leaders of the past. With his almost daily break with democratic norms, defiance of constitutional checks and balances, and calls for his supporters to commit violence against his political opponents, many across the U.S. and the world became alarmed at what was feared to be the rise of a uniquely clownish but threatening form of American authoritarianism. Your reporter spoke with Christopher Viles, director of American Studies at the University of Connecticut and co-editor of the U.S. Anti-Fascism Reader. Here, Professor Viles summarizes the points raised in his recent Jacobin Magazine article titled, Here's What We Learned About the Far Right from Donald Trump's Presidency. I think the danger of fascism in Donald Trump and some of his supporters it's not so much that he in office created a fascist state. Um, if he did, we, we would not be having this conversation right now. Um, didn't kind of come close to making the United States a quote-unquote fascist country, nor does he command some kind of uh, coherent, um, you know, fascist movement, you know, that's, that's unified. Um, but he does have, uh, you know, a fascist rhetoric and a fascist personality. And I'm saying fascist more pointedly because what separates kind of fascism from, say, conservatism is, um, you know, it's not it's not so much like conservatism invested in kind of just pres- simply preserving tradition or um, tax cuts or deregulation um, or any of these kind of, you know, more libertarian themes um, around kind of elite rule. It's more this middle class movement for based around this rhetoric of, you know, nation, action, violence, race. It's hyper nationalistic. It's driven by a warrior ethos. It's highly militaristic. Um, or it's just really invested in kind of law and order. All of these things and it's driven by kind of usually middle class activists, right? So with that in mind, Trump's rhetoric, what he's shown us is that 
that fascist rhetoric of, you know, nation, race, action, violence, um, that is electable, right? And so that's, that's scary. He didn't have the kind of discipline or the temperament or the really the organizational know-how to really convert that ethos into a new form of state, nor did he probably, you know, even want that fully. Um, just he wanted, he's just thinking specifically about himself at all times. Um, but, you know, what we do have to look out for is what if you get somebody like that who has that rhetoric but has the discipline and the organizational know-how to kind of follow through on converting the state into something very different from what it is now. Half of Republicans believe President Trump won the election. A recent Reuters-Ipsos opinion poll found that 52% of Republicans believe that Trump won the election compared to just 29% who believe Biden won and more than two-thirds of Republicans, 68 percent, were concerned about rigged vote counting and the vote counting that favored Biden. What does this portend for our future in terms of a, a large number of Republican voters who don't believe our system is legitimate? Well, I'm going to be honest. It means that basically a large number of Republican voters are willing to go along with authoritarian rule, and that's really frightening. And we've come to that place really far more rapidly than I thought. Right. So those are the stakes. So even, you know, I, you know, I know I'm almost positive, but Biden will be seated as, as the next president. But, you know, if you want to preserve democracy, whether you see yourself as like liberal, left, moderate, none of the above, even conservative, that large group of people willing to kind of get rid of democratic rule is is something that we all have to deal with. And I know I'm stating the obvious there. What was the fertile ground that you think Donald Trump took advantage of in winning the Electoral College and the presidency in 2016 that must be addressed or we're going to have another demagogue arise to take advantage of legitimate grievances that people across the country have, whether it's a declining living standard, uh, the expense of health care or higher education any number of things that really flips off people all across the country that don't seem to get addressed by either Democratic or Republican administrations. Therefore, people often look to a Donald Trump, someone seen as an outsider, to solve these intractable problems. Yeah, I mean, what the it's probably the biggest problem facing most people in the United States is, you know, the fancy term neoliberal capitalism, right? It's a laissez-faire capitalism on steroids, increased inequality, um, you know, increased racism that comes from this. So, you know, what if you don't? I mean, the 2016 results, to address your question directly, to me were as much of anything about the failure of the Democratic Party and really becoming a technocratic party um, and not really kind of addressing existential concerns of people that have to do with their daily lives, right? And so, you know, you basically and, – and so and, and it's important to not kind of talk about all Trump voters monolithically as if they, you know, could never be kind of won back, you know, because some Trump voters in 2016 voted for Biden in 2020, right? Or and some of those Trump voters voted for Obama in 2012, right? So it's important not to treat that part of the population as some kind of monolithic um, block. Um, there's a lot of motivations there. 
But unless the, Dem- the Democratic Party basically, I think, has to go populist, right? It, it, it has this natural tendency to ignore all of the millions of people who showed up um, to basically save democracy. And as always, a lot of working class people of color showed up to vote for the Democratic Party, right? And their natural tendency is to ignore that base so that they can kind of just pay attention to the suburbs, right? And if they do that again, we're not, we're going to basically get, you know, Donald Trump 2.0 in 2024. Um, They cannot ignore the populist elements of their own party. The Democratic Party has to be a big tent, not just a kind of, you know, Obama administration, you know, 2.0. That was Christopher Viles, Director of American Studies at the University of Connecticut and co-editor, along with Bill Mullen, of the U.S. Anti-Fascism Reader. Find a link to Professor Vile's recent Jacobin Magazine article titled Here's What We Learned About the Far Right from Donald Trump's Presidency by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. In mid-November, two Democratic Midwest governors made opposite decisions regarding two oil pipelines owned by the same Canadian company, Enbridge. In Michigan, Governor Gretchen Whitmer and her Department of Natural Resources denied an easement so the Enbridge Line 5 oil pipeline could continue operating, as it has since 1953. Whitmer called on Enbridge to cease operations by mid-2021. Michigan was the site of one of the worst oil spills in U.S. history, when an Enbridge pipeline ruptured in 2010 and contaminated the Kalamazoo River. But in nearby Minnesota, Governor Tim Walz and his state's Public Utilities Commission granted all but one of the permits and approvals needed by Enbridge to build their controversial Line 3 pipeline replacement project across northern Minnesota. The pipeline would threaten water quality, and cross sensitive wetlands near the headwaters of the Mississippi River, where indigenous nations claim treaty rights and harvest wild rice. The Utility Commission's own Environmental Justice Advisory Committee submitted a letter opposing the Line 3 project in order to uphold their environmental justice policy. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Winona LaDuke, who ran for vice president twice on the Green Party ticket in 1996 and 2000. LaDuke, a member of the White Earth Band of the Ojibwe, is the founding director of Honor the Earth, an indigenous environmental advocacy organization in northern Minnesota. She was one of a majority of members of the Environmental Justice Advisory Committee, who resigned after the permits were approved, writing, quote, We cannot continue to legitimize and provide cover for the Commission's war on black and brown people. Reached by phone in her car, LaDuke talks about the successful fight in Michigan and the current campaign opposing the Line 3 pipeline in Minnesota. What was interesting to us is that one governor, Governor Whitmer, using the public trust doctrine, saying that in the interest of the common waters of Lake Michigan and of Michigan, I am not going to renew this easement to Enbridge. 
And in comparison, the governor of Minnesota, there are six pipelines across Minnesota already. And this one has to have a new drought because the tribe, the Leech Lake tribe said, you cannot do it to us again. And so they're trying to force a new route, and he approved all the permits last week. And so it's like two different decisions, same company. Yeah, I mean, it's like the tale of two governors. Why did one, you know, all I could think is that she's a much more insightful woman than my governor is, <laughs> you know? There's a rise of women's leadership that is really, you know, remarkable. And, you know, she has been threatened. They threatened to kidnap her. The president has laid his eyes upon her with such vehement hatred, and then she stood up to Enbridge, too. So I give her a lot of credit. So the permits were approved. Does that mean they're going to start building it? They are. And they will be met with massive resistance and civil unrest in Minnesota. And they're bringing in 4,200 workers into these camps and into our cities and into our small towns in the middle of COVID. They're bringing in 4,200 pipeline workers. Tell me a little about the opposition to the pipeline. I know it's led by indigenous folks on the front lines, since the pipeline would go through your territory. The opposition is very broad. A bunch of librarians locked themselves to the pipe and closed it down, and then a bunch of Catholics did. There's widespread opposition. 70,000 people testified against this pipeline, 70,000. You know, lawsuits have been filed for seven years by citizens groups and tribal governments and landowners. You know, there is big opposition. Winona LaDuc, you mentioned that the company is bringing in 4,200 pipeline workers. Have the man camps to house the workers already been built? There are already camps being constructed, and they have told people to go into private homes and into trailer parks. And so the trailer parks and recreational camping are being filled up with basically pipeliners. But then they are going into our town and going into our stores without masks on. And a lot of them are armed. So you have armed, unmasked white men walking into small-town stores. What a nightmare. It is a nightmare. Public health nightmare, and that's what we think the governor should just quit this, because this is a public health nightmare. So this sounds like Standing Rock 2020, reminiscent of when thousands of indigenous and non-indigenous water protectors rallied around the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe in North Dakota in 2016 to try to stop the Dakota Access oil pipeline. Do you see it that way? I'm seeing this as this is my land and I'm going to defend it. And there's a lot of people going to help me. Pack warm clothes. There's a lot of people opposed to this pipeline. I don't know what it's going to be like. They have 300 miles of pipe not built. But they are starting in seven places at once. Do you see President-elect Joe Biden coming into office as offering an opportunity to stop Line 3? Yeah, what we need is a Green New Deal. We need a just transition because you got a bunch of people trying to dig the remaining rocks out of northern Minnesota and put in the last tar sands pipeline. That's dumb. It's just time to move on. Look, there's some trees. I'm looking for some teepee poles, and I see some here. That was Winona LaDuke, director of Honor the Earth. Learn more about the campaign opposing the Line 3 pipeline replacement project in Minnesota by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. 
Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in MP3 and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WZBC in Newton, Massachusetts, KTWH in Two Harbors, Minnesota, D-Program Radio in Norwich, Norfolk, United Kingdom, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. <laughs>